Section 3 of The Symphony Since Beethoven by Felix Weingartner. Translated by Maud Barrows Dutton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The first and the most peculiarly subjective of the Romanticists, if we turn now from the objective classical Romanticist Weber, is Robert Schumann. His individuality was diametrically opposed to Mendelssohn. Highly gifted as Mendelssohn was in mastery of form, was Schumann in inspiration. The former was a perfect artist, even in his early years. The latter, pressed impetuously forward, ceaselessly struggling for something new and more perfect than his last endeavor, until gloomy fate fettered the power of his spirit. In the first period of his works, we meet Schumann only as a pianoforte composer. Poetical pictures give rise to his compositions. He entwines the name of his youthful love in a theme and writes variations on it. The motley scenes of the carnival give him the inspiration for one of the most spirited pianoforte pieces that we possess. Hoffmann's imaginative tales cause him to write Chrysleriana and the significant sonata in F-sharp minor. He represents the two souls that dwell within his breast by two personalities, Floristan and Eusebius and describes his works now to one, now to the other. Violently abused by the critics and musicians who belonged to a guild, he formed, with friends sharing his opinions, the David's Bundler League, and dances roughly about the toes of the Philistines. I might as well say at once that Schumann achieved his greatest significance as a pianoforte composer, as the poet of the pianoforte, one might almost say. Here he possessed the sincerity of the great masters. Here he is just what he is, with no pretense of being more. New, daring conceptions speak to us from these works. And we meet, even today, the offerings of his rich imagination with unabated delight. His treatment of the pianoforte is also original, and thoroughly adapted to the nature of the instrument, as well as to musical thought while, on the other hand, his management of the orchestra leaves, as we shall see later, almost everything to be desired. At the age of thirty-one, he first turns his attention to the greater forms of music, among others to the symphony. Mendelssohn's brilliant figure, moving with playful ease through all the domains of music, was the shining ideal in Schumann's early life and works, much to the latter's disadvantage. In the attempt to imitate Mendelssohn, to attain the same finish, in the endeavor, as I might say, to be classical, his own originality suffered severely without his being able to reach his model. Throughout his life, the spirit of romance and fantasy forced its way into his works, but no longer as it did in his youth. A strange, and to a certain extent ingrafted element that very Mendelssohnian polish which he struggled in vain to acquire robs his later works of that spontaneity which charmed us so in his first compositions. His talent, which bore in smaller forms such precious fruit, became, without growing richer, pulled in this way and that into greater dimensions, and therefore thinner and more threadlike. He was required to yield more than he possessed. His productivity and versatility were nevertheless astonishingly great, 
even in the second period of his creative work, for there is hardly a musical form which he did not attempt. Since he, apparently in consequence of his being a free thinker, was averse to writing oratorios with biblical text, he accordingly chose secular poems, even fragments from Goethe's Faust, for his compositions were a sort of halfway between operas and oratorios. Besides numerous songs, many of which are among our very best, Schumann wrote concertos, chamber music of all kinds, melodramas, one opera, and, as to be expected from such a versatile artist, also symphonies. I suppose many of you will now look upon me as a heretic when I openly acknowledge that I count Schumann's symphonies as in no wise among his most important works. In his pianoforte pieces, the invention of little but very expressive themes which he knew how to vary and use in an ingenious manner, is very characteristic. In his great symphonies, he does not succeed with these themes and themelets, however warm and beautiful the feeling may have been from which they sprang. If you will examine his orchestral pieces closely, you will find that he was often forced to repeat single bars or groups of bars in order to spin out the thread further, because the theme in itself is too small for such continuation. Sometimes even the theme itself is formed through the repetition of this and that phrase. On account of these copious, tonic, and consequently rhythmical repetitions, his greater pieces for the orchestra became naturally monotonous. One can retaliate that the theme of the first movement of Beethoven's C minor symphony is much smaller than Schumann's themes. Here is the real difference between the two. In Beethoven's work, after the first entrance of the theme consisting of four notes, a simple melody which makes use of the original theme only for rhythmical framework, and not really for its own spinning out, arises over the pause of the first violins and the repetition of the theme in E-flat, F, and evolves from itself up to the second subject, entrance of the horns in E-flat major. But in Schumann's works, the melodious flow of the composition is preserved only by the repetition of themes as such, and the taking refuge in phrases which do not grow out of the subject. This weakness of Schumann's is most apparent in the first movements and in the finales of his symphonies, which, with the exception of the finale of the B-flat major symphony, which is graceful in its principal theme, but not important, are conventional and noisy. Involuntarily we ask ourselves why we must always rejoice at the end of the symphony, while in Beethoven's works in a similar case the thought never arises. The reason is because in the latter's works the rejoicing follows with psychological necessity from the conquered grief, as in the C minor or the ninth, or is already contained in the elementary ground voice of the entire work, as in the seventh symphony. In place of the great, broad adagio of the Beethoven symphony, appear in Schumann's pleasing, melodious, lyrical intermezzi, which are much better suited to the pianoforte than to the orchestra. In the main, a Schumann symphony is more effective played as a pianoforte duet than in a concert hall. The reason lies in a circumstance which the most unconditional admirers of Schumann can scarcely avoid recognizing, namely, he did not know how to handle the orchestra, either as director or composer. He worked almost always with a full material, 
but did not take the pains to elaborate the parts according to the character of the separate instruments. With almost childlike stupidity, he expected to obtain fullness and strength by doubling the instruments. Therefore, the instrumentation is heavy and inflexible, the color gray against gray. The most important themes, if played according to his directions, sometimes cannot be heard, and a true forte is about as impossible as a true piano. Whenever I see the players working with all their might, and compare as a conductor the labor of the rehearsals and the performance with the final effect, there comes over me a feeling similar to that I have towards a person in whom I expected to find mutual friendship and was disappointed. No sign of life gleams in this apathetic orchestra, which, if given even a simple Mendelssohnian piece to play, seems quite transformed. Schumann's symphonies are composed for the pianoforte, and arranged, unhappily not well at that, for the orchestra. To be sure, in these works there are flashes of genius, beautifully deep and moving passages that recall the earliest period of the composer's work, as, for example, the introduction to the B-flat major symphony, which promises great power, the middle movements up to the first trio of the scherzo, which is quite meaningless and makes Schumann's weakness most frightfully apparent, are more important than the first. In my opinion, the adagio espressivo of the C major symphony, with the ideal ascending and descending figure for the violins, is the best movement in all of his four symphonies. Schumann, as an orchestral composer, appears quite different when he conceives some poetical inspiration that is congenial to him as, for instance, Byron's Manfred. Then he loses his desire to be classical. He dares to be what he is, the imaginative romanticist leaning towards the supernatural and the mysterious. In this mood, which was closely akin to his nature, he succeeded in writing a piece of music that can, with all justice, be called classical. That wonderfully planned and unusually lofty overture to Manfred, in which piece he was also more fortunate in his orchestration, is his only piece of orchestral music which can be compared with that he wrote for the pianoforte. From the rest of the Manfred score, we can see that, under certain circumstances, even an artistic absurdity like the melodrama may be of overwhelming effect if a great spirit wanders within its precinct. I am thinking here, above all, the conjuration of Astarte. This scene, if well performed by actor and orchestra, leaves in its overpowering effect no wish unsatisfied, least of all that Manfred might actually sing. This would be worse than composing the dialogue in Fidelio and Ephraschutz. I have no idea here of championing melodrama, which is rising up again in these days, and which is even cultivated and defended by Wagnerians. It would be equally foolish to condemn, for instance, the conjuration of Astarte merely because it is a melodrama especially today when the disintegrating mind, more frequently than ever, lays hold upon works of art and a number of art principles, the same in German art as condemnations, which for the most part have arisen through a misunderstanding or a senseless echoing of Richard Wagner's prose works, are vaguely ringing in everybody's heads, ready to trip up the first independent composer. It cannot be strongly enough advised that each one shall strengthen within himself the ability to accept without prejudice the impressions offered him. It will then be much simpler to distinguish between true and false, for art principles are dead and unfruitful.
It is only the work or the act of genius that is pulsating with life. Let it express itself as it will. Therefore, Wagner's explanation of the Ninth Symphony and the place he assigned to this work in history previous to his dramas will never be convincing while his conducting of the symphony in 1872 created new pathways in the art of conducting, and its effect has been productive of large results. Schumann, who always supported all ideal effort, most loyally and zealously, after showing a brief interest in the greatest of his contemporaries, in whose glory he should have participated, turned from him first indifferently and then hostilely. Those who love Schumann should try to erase from their memories his small grumblings over Tannheiser. He turned from Wagner to herald a young musician just coming into public notice through his pianoforte sonatas with the spirited cry that here was the future messiah of music. This young musician was Johann Brahms. End of section 3